You're listening to Season 4 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans. We analyze all 42 years of Gundam episode-by-episode and movie-by-movie, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today. This special bonus episode is a companion to Season 4 of Mobile Suit Breakdown. Season 4 covers Shar's Counterattack, the fourth entry in the Gundam franchise and the fourth one to be set in the Universal Century timeline. Whenever we've started a new season, we have included a brief recap of the history of the Universal Century up to that point. The idea is to give helpful context to anyone who is just now joining us, anyone who hasn't watched the prior Gundam shows, or anyone who just wants a refresher on the big picture background. This is not a comprehensive faux history lesson, but it's what we think you ought to know going into the movie. If you aren't familiar with Mobile Suit Breakdown, and you've just stumbled upon this because you're looking to learn about the history of the Universal Century, then hello! We're a podcast covering all of Gundam in release order. This bit of history is based on what we've covered so far, First Gundam, Zeta Gundam, and Gundam Double Zeta. It therefore omits many events that were retroactively added to the Universal Century timeline after the release of Char's Counterattack in 1988. Normally, this would be included in one of our regular numbered episodes. We had it scheduled for episode 4.2, but that episode wound up being more than three hours long, so we made the call to split this section out and release it separately, as a short bonus for anyone who might find it useful. I hope you enjoy it. In the last years of the old calendar, the overconsumption of natural resources on Earth, combined with poor stewardship of the environment, threatened total ecological collapse. In order to reduce the burden on the planet without changing their own lifestyles, the leadership of the Earth Federation hatched a plan to transport the majority of the planet's human population into a network of underground cities on the moon and vast man-made colony cylinders in orbit around the Earth. As soon as the colonies, grouped into seven space nations called Sides, were ready, the government began a massive forced migration program that would eventually see some 90% of the human population living, working, and dying in space. It is now year one of the Universal Century. Over the following decades, the forced migrants and their children created new identities for themselves. They became citizens of their sides, but more than that, they became spacenoids. In the UC-50s, the spacenoid politician, Zeon Zumdaikun, began agitating for a unified spacenoid identity, for the autonomy of the sides as independent nations, and, most extreme of all, for the final and complete departure of all humans from Earth. Daikun found a receptive audience among the leaders of Side 3, the most remote of all the space nations. It was there that Daikun established himself and his family. By UC-58, thanks in large part to his influence, Side 3 declared its independence from the Earth Federation. As his political ideas took hold, 
Daikun began to theorize more and more about the essential nature of humanity. He came to believe that living in space would trigger the next stage of human evolution. He predicted that a new type of person would soon emerge from among the colonists. But in UC 68, Daikun died under suspicious circumstances. In the aftermath, his friend and advisor, the side three politician and magnate Daegwin Zabi, seized power, purged the other factions within Daikun's party, and declared himself the sovereign of side three. He gave the nation the name that it would carry into the history books, the Principality of Xi'an. However, despite Daegwin and the Zabi family's best efforts, Daikun's two young children, Kasval and Artesia, slipped out of Side 3 to grow up in exile on Earth. In time, some would come to see them as the inheritors of Daikun's vision. During the ten years after Daikun's death, the Zabi family strengthened their hold on power in the Principality of Xi'an. Effective leadership of the Principality passed from Daegwen to his energetic, ambitious, and genocidal son, Girin. Under the Zabi family's military dictatorship, Xi'an built up its armed forces. It developed a new, terrifyingly effective humanoid weapon called a mobile suit. It fought proxy wars against the Federation in the other sides. And when it was ready, it launched a sudden, all-out attack on the Federation and the other still-loyal colonies. The date was January 3rd, UC-79. Within one week, the indiscriminate use by both sides of weapons of mass destruction claimed billions of lives. By the end of the first month, half the total population was simply gone. It was during this period that the Xeon forces committed, for the first time, one of the atrocities for which they would ever after be infamous, the forced deorbiting of an inhabited colony cylinder as a kind of ersatz artillery strike aimed directly at the Earth Federation's headquarters on Earth. While the colony drop devastated the planet and caused mass death, it failed to end the war. By September of that same year, the Earth Federation was ready for their counterattack. They had developed their own state-of-the-art mobile suit, a weapon called the Gundam. But before it could be activated properly, a Xeon raid on the small colony where the Gundam was being built forced the civilian teenager, Amuro Ray, to become the Gundam's pilot. He would pilot it for the rest of the war, becoming one of the Federation's greatest heroes in the process. It was through his experiences as the Gundam's pilot that he, and those around him, began to develop superhuman abilities. Supernatural perception and prediction, even telepathy. Whispers swirled around the boy. Could he be the new type that Xeon Daikun had anticipated? During the fighting, Amuro's rival was the mysterious masked Xeon ace, Shar Aznable. Originally meeting by chance, Shar would pursue Amuro for the duration of the war. But Shar was no mere Xeon pilot. In truth, Shar Aznable was none other than Xeon Daikun's son, Kasval Rem Daikun. His real objective was the eradication of the Zabi family that had stolen and perverted his father's legacy. 
By November, the Federation forces had turned the tide. In late December, they launched their final strike against the Xeon fortifications, blocking access to Side 3 and the Principality itself. By the time the battle ended, on January 1st, UC-80, the Zabi family was decimated and Xeon crushed. The war, later dubbed the One Year War, ended soon after. During this final battle, the rivalry between Amuro and Shar reached its climax. Amidst their repeated duels, Shar had cultivated a protege, the mysterious young mystic Lala Soon. Like Amuro, her burgeoning psychic powers made her a deadly warrior. But as those two clashed on the battlefield, the young new types, Amuro and Lala, formed a transcendent connection. Shar, jealous, interrupted. In the ensuing clash, Amuro stabbed at Shar, but Lala took the thrust for him. Both men blamed the other for her death. They would never really forgive each other. After the war came the rebuilding, but the Federation focused its efforts on the wealthy parts of the Earth, leaving poorer regions, Africa, Asia, South America, and the space colonies, to fend for themselves. As if to add insult to injury, though the central government offered the colonies nothing, it demanded from them everything it had before the war. The status quo of Federation hegemony, crushing tax burdens, rampant poverty, decaying infrastructure, and corruption among unaccountable colonial officials persisted. The Zabi family and Xeon ultranationalism had co-opted the spacenoid rights movement, but in the wake of the war, that movement recovered and began holding rallies again, organized into a loose coalition called the AUG. In response, the Federation empowered a special force, the Titans, to cow the spacenoids into submission by whatever means necessary. In UC-85, the Titans used lethal poison gas to suppress a spacenoid rights demonstration on a cylinder called Colony 30. The colony's entire population, which numbered in the millions, was exterminated. The Federation government and the cooperative mass media concealed the massacre, but news inevitably leaked out. Anti-Federation groups began to retaliate, violently. With secret backing from arms manufacturer Anaheim Electronics, the AUG turned militant. At its core, AUG was a semi-autonomous military force made up of Federation defectors and ex-Zeon renegades, armed by Anaheim Electronics, and financed and directed by space-based oligarchs. Among its leaders were Bright Noah, a Federation veteran who had been Amuro Ray's commander during the One Year War, Shah Aznable, once again in disguise under the assumed name Quattro Bajina, and Amuro Ray himself. Putting aside their bad blood, they struggled together to destroy the Titans and reform the Earth Federation. As the battles between the Ayug and the Titans intensified, the balance of power was disrupted by the sudden arrival of a new faction, Haman Karn and Axis Zeon. These were survivors from the old Principality who went into exile after the war. Perhaps the Federation let them be in the belief that all of the fight had been beaten out of them. But if so, they were badly wrong. Axis Zeon had spent all the intervening years rebuilding their forces, 
and now they returned to take back all they had lost. Deftly playing the AU and the Titans factions against each other, Haman's Axis managed to emerge practically unscathed from the cataclysmic final battles of what would later be called the Grips Conflict. And by the early months of UC-88, the Titans' entire leadership, along with most of their forces, had been reduced to space dust. On the other side, Ayug's frontline force was reduced to a single badly damaged ship, two broken mobile suits, and one teenaged pilot. Shah Aznable, born Kasval Rem Daikun, and also known as Quattro Bajina, disappeared during the fighting. And, though it would not be revealed for some time, so did the last heir of the Zabi clan, Meneva Lao Zabi. Undeterred, Haman moved quickly to establish a base of power inside Three, old homeland of the Principality of Zeon. She made contact with other Zeon remnants in hiding around the Earth sphere and linked them together into a unified Neo-Zeon movement under her domination. Having put all their hopes in the Titans, the Earth Federation's lethargic leadership was all too ready to capitulate to her demands. They offered Haman legal control over Side 3 in exchange for peace. But even so, she ordered another colony drop, this time on the civilians in Dublin, merely as a show of force. Yet in her moment of triumph, when her power seemed unassailable, Haman's luck ran out. The Ayug had used this time to rebuild its forces, and now they launched a desperate attack deep into the heart of Side 3. Malcontents within the Neozeon forces picked that moment to launch a coup d'etat. The coup forces were defeated, but the battle cost Haman dearly, and she herself was killed by one of the Ayug's ace pilots. Ayug and Federation forces, now working hand in hand, mopped up the last of the Neozeon rebels and re-established Federation hegemony over Side 3. What little remained of Ayug was either integrated back into the Federation forces or decommissioned. Any vestiges of its time as a serious challenge to the Federation's authority over the colonies were quietly swept under the nearest rug. But none of the Universal Century's problems had been resolved, and Shar Aznable was still out there, somewhere. Four years have passed since that day. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The music used in this episode included The Dance of the Sky by MMFFF, Gray Sky Peace by Rutger Muller, Golden Riddles, Echoes and Points, Act 2 by Lloyd Rogers, and New York City, Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. 
You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at Gundam Podcast, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast, or by email at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. And thank you for listening.